what is life really all about? What makes life, life? Is it, is it about how much we know? Is that what it's about, just, just getting knowledge? Or is it life really all about what we achieve, what we do with our time? Is it about what we own? I don't think so. And in fact, I don't think any of us deep down think so, because even though the world piles those messages on one after the other, if you just learn this, if you just own this, if you get a degree from here, if you drive this car, if you achieve this position, if, if you are this kind of a person, the world piles that on. And yet we know, don't we, from experience, that everything like that tends to feel a little bit hollow. It tends to end up feeling empty. You achieve the, the educational goal that you've poured yourself into for years and there's nothing wrong with that. Work hard at uni, but you get to the end of it. And actually it's quite empty feeling. You dress like Batman with a flat hat on your head for a couple of hours and people take photos and, and, and it's over. You know, it's just kind of, it's just brief. It's just a moment and then it's not, it's not all that it felt like it would be. What we know, what we do, what we achieve, what we own will not satisfy us because life is about something much more than that. And that's what we're going to think about this morning. We're in a series, we're thinking about the basic building blocks of a belief system. And last week we started by saying that all of us are believers, whether you'd call yourself a Christian or, or, or another religious name, whatever you call yourself, that's not the point. The fact is, we are all believers we constantly, every day, live our lives based on beliefs. You believe that chair would hold you and you sat on it. It's a relief that it did, come to think about it. We believe that this information is trustworthy while that information isn't. But we believe that this person can be trusted while that person can't. And, and it's belief that drives everything that we do constantly, whether we call ourselves believers or not. We're believers, right? And if we cut down, if we kind of dig down to the very roots of a belief system, whatever belief system we have, there's a foundation. And in that foundation, I think there are four big building blocks, four questions. And our answer to those four questions, whether we consciously think about the questions or not, our answer to those four questions determines the entire infrastructure and superstructure of our lives. How we answer those questions will shape how we do life, how we do family relationships, how we do singleness. It will affect how we do work, how we do unemployment, how we do church, how we do ministry. Everything that we do, everything that we live, we're living out a belief system that at its foundation is built on four basic building blocks. And so last week, we started with the first one. Anyone, anyone remember what the first question was? Which God? Thank you, Adrian. Which God is God? Is God God? And if it is God that's God, then which God is God? And if it's not God that's God, are you saying that you're God? <laughs> I mean, there's, uh, the God question is a big one for everyone. And which God is a huge question, especially when in our culture, I think we've got a little bit complacent because of our Christian heritage. We just kind of assume if someone's talking about God and maybe using the word he, then they must be talking about the same God that we talk about because, of course, that's God. But biblically, you don't find that kind of looseness about God. Biblically, which God is always a big issue. 
And so which God people believe in or which God people don't believe in is a massive question. And so what we did last week was we decided to, or I decided, you didn't have much choice, but I decided to use Paul's missionary journeys and, and use those as a sort of uh, a seedbed for our, our study, if you like, for a, a place to root ourselves for these four weeks. And we watched Paul in action, first of all with Barnabas going to Lystra, and then with um, nobody on his own going to Athens. First journey and second journey. Why Lystra? Why Athens? Because in both places, Paul was speaking to a group of people who were not Bible trained, hadn't been to Sunday school, they hadn't seen flannel graph boards, they hadn't read Bible storybooks, they did not know the basics of the Bible. And in both cases, Paul begins his presentation of the gospel by answering the question, which God is God? And in both cases, he presents a very specific picture of God. He talks about the living God. The God who gives life, the God who is generous, the God who is patient, the God who is kind. In, in Athens, where there's more development, there's more time and more detail, we're told that he preached Jesus and the resurrection. And we're told that, that God orchestrated things so that people would seek him and find him. But this isn't an open-ended invitation forever, because one day Jesus is coming back to judge. And so there's a, a time frame in which the invitation is open. And so Paul preached that message in Lystra. He preached essentially the same thing in Athens, and he was answering the question of which God is God. There are a couple of things that we noticed in, in Acts 17 that I just want to go back to to really set us up for today. You remember he was speaking to this group, you can turn to Acts 17 if you like, because we will be reading from it again. Um, he's speaking to this group of philosophers, Stoics and Epicureans, and we talked about the differences and we're not going to get into that again. But here was a group of people who were self-confessed intelligent, right? They were bright, they were thinkers. And I know for most of us, we, we haven't studied philosophy. We, we tend to kind of pull back from in self-confessed, intelligent philosophers. You know, we sort of go, oh, they're intimidating. But actually, don't take this the wrong way. In one sense, we're all philosophers. In, in as much as what they were doing was they were thinking about reality to the best of their ability. They didn't have any outside help. They didn't have any revelation. So actually, we're better off than them. But they were thinking to the best of their ability and trying to make sense of things. And so Paul is engaging people who already had a view of God. Both groups already believed that essentially there is one divine being. And so how does he deal with them? How does he address them? We, we thought about the fact that in his heart, he was angered and provoked by the culture. And yet in his manner, he was gracious and warm uh, far more than perhaps we can be at times. And we thought about how he didn't ever quote from the Old Testament because they wouldn't recognize it anyway. He quoted their poets to them. But also, the perhaps most important thing, and I want to say it again just to underline it, did Paul accept where they had arrived in their own thinking as a good starting point upon which he could add Christianity? Okay, you've done your thinking, you, you've done your philosophy, you've got a view of the divine being, now let me add some detail. Absolutely not. Even though he quotes their poets, even though he doesn't quote the Bible, what he does, essentially, and I think graciously, is he says to them, ignorance. What you don't know, I am going to make known, and essentially he starts from scratch. 
if only the church had done that for the past 2,000 years. Instead of accepting common ideas and human thinking about God and then trying to add biblical truth to that to create some sort of blended, merged, mashed potato thing, instead of that, if only we'd said, you know what, our thinking is broken. We can't get it right by our own guesswork or by our own philosophical musings. Let's put that aside and let's get our noses into the Bibles and let's see what God has to say for himself. Who is God, really? That's what Paul was doing. And so through this sermon in Athens, he preached an utterly biblical message. What does it mean to be biblical? I think a lot of the time we think that being biblical means that you can quote a verse to support what you're saying. You know, make an assertion, here's a verse. Make another statement, here's a verse. Is that being biblical? I don't think so. Could be. But I think I mean it in a much richer way than that. You can take a verse from the Bible, you can take lots of verses from the Bible, and you can say whatever you like. Or every one of us could make up a new religion and claim it's biblical if all we have to do is add verses. You could have the boat-building religion. And you could have the throwing birds through window religion. And you could have the, you know, throwing stones at tall men religion. Please don't go that way. And we could make up our own religions and we could support them biblically. That's not being biblical. That's what the cults do. That's the, the people who knock on our doors and quote verses and we get all tied up in knots. They're not actually biblical because they're just using verses to say what they want to say. What it means to be biblical is to be in the Bible and to get the Bible into us, to to read it and devour it as if it's the most precious gift we've ever been given, to to spend a significant chunk of time reading it and reading it and saying, God, would would you show me what you're like? I don't want to trust my own thinking. I want to trust your word. Would you make me a man, a woman of your word? That's what it means to be biblical, and Paul had done that. And he'd, he'd read his Bible, his, all he had was the Old Testament, of course, but he'd read it, he knew it inside and out, he'd reprocessed it prayerfully, he'd made sense of it in light of Jesus, and here he's standing in Athens in front of this crowd, and he never quotes it, he never proof texts, he never gives a reference. But every single thing he says is biblical. It just oozes out, because that's what it is to be biblical. He'd just been, before he got to Athens, in a place called Berea. If you let your eyes go up the page to verse 11, Acts 17, 11, in Berea it says that the Jews there, where he was preaching, they were of more noble character than the Jews in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily to see what it said. It also says that they received the message with eagerness. That should be our attitude. When we hear things being presented that we don't recognize or that maybe are slightly different or perhaps are are challenging some of our preconceived ideas, we should be leaning forward and saying, oh, this is interesting and I'm going to check it out. That's the kind of church we need to be, people who get into the Word so that the Word gets into us so that we can see the truth for ourselves. And so Paul preached and he preached an answer to the question, which God is God? But at the same time, he addressed the second question. And this is the second building block that we need to ponder in our time together this morning. Take a look at verse 28. This, if you want a text for the morning, this is it, okay? Acts 17, verse 28. These are his quotes from Greek poets. Never thought I'd preach purely from this verse. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In both quotes, he uses the word we. Here's the second question. If the first question is which God, or which God is God, or what is God like, the second question is what does it mean to be a human? What are we? What is it to be a man or a woman? What, what is that? You, you might say, I've never thought of that. Bizarre, I've never thought of that question. It actually, it's quite important, isn't it? It affects how we deal with other people. It affects how we lead other people. It affects how we relate to other people, how we do marriage, how we do singleness, how we do parenting, how we do childlessness, all these things. It, it, it's all uh, going to be birthed out of our thinking about what it is to be human. And what Paul is doing here is he's quoting two poets. He's quoting Epimenides and he's quoting Aratus. You've probably never heard of either. It doesn't matter. It's not important. In fact, he's not even affirming what they said. What they said and what they meant wasn't what Paul meant here because Paul is loading it with biblical meaning. And I'm going to show you uh, what I mean by that. He's taking familiar terms. It's like quoting the, uh, the, the first line of a pop song. He's just using that and he's giving it biblical meaning as he preaches to them. And I want us to take these two quotes and pursue the question, what does it mean to be a human? Because this is massive. Firstly, we'll take the second quote. He says, we are his offspring. Now, whatever the poet meant, what Paul meant becomes clear in the next verse. Look at verse 29. He says, therefore... Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Okay, so he's, he's critiquing their view of God. They've got lots of little gods all around the place on little plinths, you know, and little signs in case you don't recognize them. And he's saying to them, hang on a second, since we are his offspring... Obviously, God cannot be an image that we come up with. Or, or to put it uh, slightly differently, since we are his offspring, who's made in whose image? Is God made, it, made in our image? Or are we made in his? You see, the language of image that Paul brings out here, if we knew our Bibles, it would trigger a passage. What does it mean, the image of God? made in our image or us made in his. Anybody got a Bible passage where that thought seems kind of big in the Old Testament? Sorry? Ten Commandments? We can go back deeper than that. Dig deeper. Genesis. Let us make man. Yeah, let's go to Genesis 1 because I think with Paul's language of, of the image, yeah, don't make images of God. That's where the Ten Commandments piece is, is absolutely on target. But is God made in our image Implication, no, we're made in his because we are his offspring. We have to go back to Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, funnily enough, page 3. I don't quite get that, but it's page 3 in a blue Bible. Okay, so page 3, or Genesis 1. Let's go back and see, because this is the passage where the Bible really lays the foundation of what it means to be in the image of God, what it means to be a human. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and darkness covered it and the, the spirit of God hovered over the deep and God said, let there be light. And then for the next 20, 25 verses, it just seems to spill from one thing to the next. It's a wonderful, powerful passage. 
describing, I believe, very accurately that God created everything and how he did it. It was by his word. And in days one, two, three, setting the stage, and days four, five, six, putting the, the creatures into the, that stage that he'd created. And he comes to the end of verse 25, and you've got this amazing, abundant creation. And then comes the pinnacle, the climax of it all. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. We're only 26 verses into the Bible, and already we've got some stuff to chew on, haven't we? We've got, uh, in the first couple of verses, we've got God creating the heavens and the earth, and we've got the Spirit of God. Now, is, is God the Father or the Son, or both? You choose. It's definitely one or the other or both. And the Spirit in verse 2. So we've got, potentially, in the first two verses, a reference already to a God who is Father, Son, Spirit, or just Father, Spirit, if you want to hold back on the Son part for now. But either way, there's some sense of plurality there. There's some sense of diversity. And that becomes clear already in verse 26. After this creation where this God is, is abundant and generous. I mean, just think about it. The fish of the seas. God didn't just create a functional fish. <laughs> we would do that, wouldn't we? It would be eight inches long and it would be gray. Right? God didn't do that. He created all shapes and sizes and colors and, and just bizarre, you know, sea, like horse things. I mean, just strange creatures and octopus and, and, and just this abundance and the land creatures. We would have had some sort of sheep-sized robot. And God created giraffes and dogs and elephants and, and, and all sorts. And all the, the different fruits and all the different seeds and all the different plants and every one different and every leaf different. What kind of a God does that sort of creation spring from? It's got to be a God who at his core is generous and giving and creative and, uh, and maybe diverse, not just singular. God is not just this single entity, but he is in relationship. And as the scripture goes on, we see this relational reality being described all the way through scripture of a God who communicates, a God who speaks and listens, a God who gives, a God who cares about the other, a God who stoops down. And, and all of that, we're seeing hints of it already in verse 26, where he says, let us make man in our image. There's a conversation there. And it's out of that conversation that humanity is birthed. And humanity is birthed in the image of this God. So what is the image? Is this passage saying that we're made in the image of God and the image of God is that we can think abstractly. We can be the best computers on the planet. I don't think so. There's no hint of that here. And yet people will argue that, that the image of God is about abstract thinking. I'd say, look at the text. Is there any hint that way? Uh, some people say, well, the image of God is that we are commanded to rule, and it always sounds a bit iron fistish. <laughs> we'll see that the tone of the ruling language is actually very kind and considerate and careful. It reflects the God who's created everything. Now, I think the image of God here is something profoundly relational, reflecting a God who, whose delight is in the other. And so let's look at the verses here. He said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. If we'd never experienced anything or read beyond this point, we wouldn't have a problem with that verse, and nor would creation. 
The Labradors and the goldfish and the sharks, they would have been delighted to be ruled by a man who's made in the image of their God. There's no problem there. Because he has been abundant and he's been generous and he's been kind and now he's made somebody in his image to represent him to creation. So don't view the ruling as harsh and cold here. That's something we came up with later. In fact, it goes on. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What's that about? Uh, Does the Bible actually say that male and female are equal? Yeah. Which is bizarre for ancient religious literature. But male and female, completely equal. Diverse, different, everybody who's married would agree with that. We're different, we don't think the same, we don't function the same. Praise God for that. But we're equal. Equal and different. And somehow it's in this diversity and unity of man and wife that we really see the image of God in all its fullness. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that if we're single, we don't have the image of God. We do because we're still relational as single people. But there's a picture implicit in husband and wife that is reflective of the very nature, the the very image of God himself. What would you like to do, dear? Whatever you would prefer. That doesn't sound too realistic, does it? But that's the way it was designed. You're more important than I am. No, 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 no. You're more important than I am. You see, the conversation between man and wife, if it weren't tainted by sin, would be a perfect representation of the relationship between father and son. I want to do whatever pleases you. Well, I'm, I'm all about you. I want to praise you. I'm going to praise you. That's what God's like, and we're made in his image. And and on it it goes here, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. That sounds a bit harsh. Don't don't import that. He's, He's just saying, you know, multiply, be creative, be procreative. Fill the earth, be a representation of what I'm like, giving. And have you noticed that every child is different? You get two parents, and I know we felt this. After child number one, we said, oh, look, she's got your nose, and she's got my eyes, and she looks like this. And, you know, that's the DNA. We can see the DNA. And then we got pregnant again, and we thought there's no way that the second one could be anything different than the first one. But she is, and she's also beautiful and also wonderful, but different. And, and there's that procreation reflecting the nature of God, where the creation that he makes is diverse, and yet there's a unity to that. And it's a beautiful passage, and it goes on, and God's saying, look, I'm going to give you everything, plants and seeds and all of that is generous. Now you rule over it in the way that I'm ruling over you, generously, caringly, looking after, giving, caring, concern. And the passage moves on, and you move into chapter 2, where it comes around and it gives some more detail. And I want us to notice one thing in chapter 2, that as we get to the end of it, there's one place where... Before the fall, before sin has entered, God says something is not good. The term all the way through is it's good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then he says it is not good for man to be alone. Here was Adam, the the one made in the image of God. and, And he was ruling and caring and concerned and God said, name the animals, you're in charge. Okay, I'll name them. Uh, that's, if that's a, not a giraffe, I don't know what is. That's a giraffe. And, and that one, well, let's just call that sheep. It, it just kind of looks like a sheep. And, and, and Adam's naming all these pairs of animals, but there's no helper for him. And God says, that's not good. Why? 
because a solo human, if there's only one human on the earth, how can that really represent a God who's a relator? It can't. And so God put Adam to sleep and he took out one of his ribs and and he he formed, he fashioned Eve and then he brought Eve to him. And in that moment, what was Adam's response? I, I think Adam did exactly what husbands do at weddings. I remember that moment, standing at the front, looking down the aisle, and suddenly there was my bride. Oh my. So, I got out my list of what values do I have, what things do I consider attractive, and I gave her marks out of ten. I scored her hair, I scored her headdress, I, you know, the whole thing. Of course I didn't. You think I, that, yeah. uh, That's not the way we actually function. Even the most computer-minded engineer amongst us, standing at the, the front of the aisle, when you see your bride, your heart just skips about five beats and then goes a million miles an hour. It's just a response. Whoa! And that's what Adam did. After all of the factual detail of Genesis 1 and 2, God did this, and God said this, and God did this. Isn't good? That's good. good, good. You know, after everything, and it's, it's very factual, and I treat it as complete fact, okay? Just very factual. And then you come to the end, and what do you get? Adam sees Eve, and he goes poetic. (laughs) It's like going ballistic, but he goes poetic. In that moment, just like when men get engaged, suddenly he's writing poems. This is now bone of my bones and and flesh of my flesh. Uh, She should be called woman because she came out of man, and it's like he can't find the words. He's just overwhelmed. I remember when I was in Bible school going through this passage and the, the teacher, the big Chinese guy, uh, was teaching it and he said, okay, it's very important that we understand the Hebrew here for what Adam said about Eve. And we thought, oh, this is great Hebrew. You know, so we get our pens and we're all ready and we're all waiting for what he said. And he said, this is what it means in the Hebrew. Yabba dabba do. <laughs> Are you sure? But you see, that's the point. It's this exuberant, just overflowing response. Why is that the climax of Genesis 1 and 2? Because that is the point. That is the image of God. That we are not power mongers. We are not uh, creators in the sense of just sort of creating stuff for some personal benefit. No, we are relators made in the image of a God who's a relator, a God who if you were to enter into a conversation with God the Father and you start piling on the praise, what does he say? Have you seen my son? I'm just delighted in my son. That's everything. Every time God speaks from heaven, he's delighting in his son. And so you go to the son, you say, son, you know, you are the author of creation, you're the Lord of every man, you know, because we probably will speak in hymns, right, when we see it. And so we pile on the praise to Jesus. What does Jesus say? My father is greater than I, I just do my father's will. And he will point us to the father, and the father would point us to the son, and the son will point us to the father. And what would Adam have done? Hey, Adam, it's good to meet you. Have you met my wife, Eve? I mean, she is amazing. He is captured, he is captivated, he is delighted, and that's the nature of what it is to be made in the image of God. We are not these responsible individuals who make choices and determine our lives. We are made to respond. We are made to relate. And so the climax of Genesis 2, the climax of the creation, is the arrival of the bride. When Adam sees Eve, he is blown away. And for the rest of the Bible... We see people working out what it is to live in that reality versus what it is to live in a fallen reality. Next week, we're going to look at uh, a little bit of what it is to be fallen. There's a little clue in terms of the question next week. But we're going to address this issue of, you know, 
how we live post-Genesis 3 isn't the way it was designed. And so here's Paul, fast forward, Acts 17, and he's speaking to a group of philosophers, and he's speaking to them post-fall, after the fall into sin. And his first uh, quote that we looked at, actually his second one, was, we are God's offspring, which means we are made in his image, not he in ours. Now, if God were made in our image, what kind of a God would he be? You see, we don't live the reality of Genesis 1 and 2. Even though deep down we kind of do, we want to, but actually we live in a world where it's all about what you know, and what you do, and what you achieve, and what you own. And so if God were made in our image, I think we'd end up with a God defined by his CV. Here's God's CV. You know what a CV is? You, You write it when you're applying for a job. And on your CV, don't worry about reading the detail, you can look at it if you want, but that's not the point. Uh, When you're applying for a job, you you take a piece of paper and you put on there, what do I know, what have I done, what have I achieved, what are my skills, Uh, you know, how significant am I, and how can I distinguish myself from everybody else? That's the point of a CV, is to grab attention, it's to say, look at me. And that's the world we live in. And we project that onto God and end up with a God who's just constantly saying, look at me. I know more than you. I've done more than you. I'm more significant. I'm more powerful. I have more skills. I have better references or I don't need references. I'm just, I am God and I'm better. And and, and that's the version of God that the philosophers had. And that's the version of God that has come into the church for the past 2,000 years. Not from here, but from our thinking with verses attached. But a God who's defined as a set of truths, a set of capacities, a set of abilities, let me put it to you this way. If you put an application in and, and you put your CV in there and you've got a letter back saying, we've read your CV and now we know you and we know that you're not suitable, we're not calling you for an interview, how would you feel? What do you mean now you know me? You don't know me. You know some facts about me. You don't know me. And yet, for too long, we've treated God as a set of facts. I know this, and I know this, and I know this, and I know this. And we think we know him. We don't. We know about him. You see, even if the truths on the CV are true truths, if God is simply a God of a CV, that's not the God of the Bible. And if we think that's what he is, then we will live our lives as if that's what it is to be godly. I need to learn more. I need to do more, I need to achieve more, I need to own more, because the more significant I am, the higher the position I achieve, the more status I have, the more influence I hold, the better I am than others, the more distinguished I am than others, the more like God I am, and here I am. Welcome world to another mini-God. And it's ugly. And it's as ugly in the church as it is in the world. And it comes from a wrong view of God, and from a wrong understanding of what it means to be made in his image. What's the contrast? What would be a better image that we could use instead of a a CV as true as most of that stuff would be? I think we need to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and come back to the reality of a family portrait. Now forgive me for using my own family because I couldn't find another picture big enough, but a family portrait is very different than a CV. 
A CV says, these are the facts, this is my significance. A family portrait says, here are the people I'm connected to. These are my relationships. Have you noticed that you can achieve everything to get the ultimate perfect CV? Maybe you've tried it, maybe you've seen other people try it. But when people try it and they achieve it at the expense of family, at the expense of friendship, it's always so empty, isn't it? That's where you get that 50-year-old executive who's just been voted as the new CEO and given a six-figure bonus and, and told that he can drive whatever car he dreams of and he's got it all, but he's got nothing. He sits at the big empty table drinking himself into oblivion because his wife is gone and his kids are gone and his friends are gone and it all feels so empty because we're not designed to live for that. We're designed to live for that. Even in singleness, the connections as friends. Even in childlessness, the pain of that, of course, God understands. But even without children, being able to care and love and give. The, the, the richness of humanity and our life comes from relationships. And God invites us to relate to him. And that's what life is. Because that's what he is. He's more concerned about his son than he is about you celebrating how much he knows. He's more concerned about the bride of his son than he is concerned about you being able to tell him how much he, power he has. And so look at what Paul says in Acts 17. In verse 28, the first quote from Epimenides, he says this, For in him we live and move and have our being. And actually the, the poet, <laughs> he would have meant by that, since God is everywhere... He's really close, and since he's everywhere, you know, he's in this chair, and he's in this table, and he's in this wall, and he's in that tree. Since he's everywhere, he's kind of the ultimate resource in which we live, which actually is right over here. God is a resource figure, giving us benefits. But Paul fills it with new meaning. And through this message, and through the verses surrounding it, he's saying, no, no, no. It's in him that we live. It's in relationship to him that we have our being. That's what it is to be alive. Notice what he says back in verse 26, 27. God has providentially orchestrated all the details. Why? Verse 27, he did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And then you come down to verse 30. After the reference to the, uh, whose image is God made in, Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent. Such a critical word. I wish we would understand it. Uh, repent. Do you know what repent means? It means to turn. It means to turn. You go in one direction and you turn and you go 180 degrees to the other, the other way. Complete turnaround. And God commands people everywhere to repent. Repent of what? Repent of sins? and turn to doing good. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about making God in our image. He's talking about finding life in our way of defining things. And here Paul's saying repent. Repent of what? Repent of treating God and human life like it's an exercise in building a CV. Stop trying to be significant and turn 180 degrees to a God who wants you to be part of his family. That's what repent means. 
It means to turn from doing things the wrong way, living things the wrong way, by the wrong values, wrong view of God, wrong view of what it is to be human, and turn to a God who's got his arms outstretched to welcome us into his embrace. He wants that we would seek him and find him. Because that's the kind of generous, kind, patient God that he is. And so Paul's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, it's all about that. Paul wasn't on some sort of moral crusade trying to clean up the ancient Roman world. He wasn't preaching moralism and morality. He was preaching Jesus and his resurrection. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't behave. The gospel is be embraced by a loving God. And so what does Paul say? You know what? You're living for yourself and your own significance. Whichever version, turn. Maybe you're living the kind of gross version, doing things that you, you don't even dare mention to others because you're, you're ashamed and you're embarrassed and you, you find there's some sort of thrill in that or some sort of significance or maybe some sort of addiction, whatever. And Paul says, turn, turn to God who wants you to find him. Or maybe you're building a CV in the world's eyes, trying to be significant and impressive and the most educated and the most powerful and the most influential. And Paul's saying, turn from that and turn to a God who wants to embrace you. And maybe you're building your CV in Christian world. Church attendance, being good, being seen to be good, being impressive, being moral, being holy, whatever it is, if we're doing it in some sort of attempt to achieve by our own responsibility, it's still over here. And Paul's saying, no, turn, repent, and come to the holy God who loves you and discover in his embrace, in his family, what true transformation is. And we'll think about that more next week. Repent. So important. Because life doesn't consist in CVs. Life is not about what you know and what you do and what you achieve and what you own. Life is not about how much position you can get or how much influence you can have or or how much people look to you. It's not about that. Life is not about what we do, what we know, what we own, what we achieve. Life is about who we know. It's about being in relationship with a God who designed us in His image to enjoy relationship with him, to love him because he loved us first. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus came to achieve, to call us all away from a God of the CV, made in our image, and to come back to the God in whose image we are made. Every time we feel empty in our loneliness, Every time we feel hurt in a broken relationship, every time we feel let down when somebody seems to to treat us as, as worth less than them, Paul says, come to a God who's created you in his image and who has made it so that you can seek him and you can find him because of what Jesus has done. Life isn't about what we know or what we do or what we achieve or even what we own. It's about who we know. It's about who we love about who loved us first.